the incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Friday, TGIF. We're looking for reasons for the TGs right now. What a time. Leslie Rule is a Seattle area artist, photographer, and best-selling author of two suspense novels, five nonfiction books, and dozens of articles in national magazines, including Reader's Digest. At 17, she began to work with her famous mother, author Ann Roll, as research assistant and trial photographer. Many of Leslie's courtroom photos appear in her mother's books. We interviewed Ann Rule four times in t- uh, 2010, 2011, and 2012. We, inter- we have interviewed Leslie Rule seven times starting in 2008 and our last interview was nine years ago with her in 2011 so it's been nine years since we've had leslie m all we ever talked about was ghosts but today we're going to talk true crime so welcome to manson mitchell leslie rule glad you're there well nice to be here with you guys again after all this time after all this time, not not it's been nine years. I couldn't believe I looked it up. 2011 was the last time we talked to you, and we have a, a collection of ghost books that say rule on them, in addition to your mom's true crime books. And it, we wanted to talk to you today because you've come out with a true crime book. Yes, a very shocking case out of Omaha. And uh, how long did that take you to put it together from start to finish? Because I will tell you, I couldn't put it down, and I read it in two days. Oh, thank you. I, I probably about two years. I made three trips to Omaha, and it was a pretty complex case. So it took me a long time to get my head around it. I'm sure it did. Uh, let's step back for a moment in your in your biography. I was saying how you had been your mom's photographer. So this was not new to you. While she was writing true crime, you were writing ghost stories. But talk a a little bit about how your mother's story got intertwined with your own. Um, And and like a little bit of of her past, which I think, you know, not everybody might know about. Well, my mom actually spent her summers in jail as a child because her grandfather uh, was a sheriff in Staten, Michigan. Her grandparents lived in a mom-pa jail, uh, ran the whole jailhouse, and it was her job as a little girl to carry trays of food to the prisoners. And she met a lady, uh, a murderess, um, who actually taught her how to knit. And that is what started her fascination with the sociopath. And so from the time she was a little girl, she was fascinated with the idea that that a little child, a little innocent child, could grow up and become a killer. And the woman who taught her how to knit seemed like a really nice lady, um, but she had actually killed her husband. Uh, She'd found him in the arms of her best friend, 
in the truck that she had bought him with her waitressing tips. And she explained to my mother that it was justifiable homicide. And my mom didn't really get it. It didn't, it didn't seem like a good reason to take someone else's life. So that's where it, her uh, fascination was sparked. And she also loved watching her grandfather and her uncles, who were also in law enforcement. She loved watching them work. And it was her lifetime dream. And she became a cop in the, at about age 22 in Seattle. Um, but her career lasted less than a year because without her glasses, she was legally blind. And so when the yearly physical rolled around and she didn't pass the eye test, uh, she lost her job. I'm looking at that situation and I'm saying to myself, Leslie, that your mom had another destiny because she made her mark on the world. And it wasn't it wasn't going to happen that way. I can tell even when a sympathetic tester, as you write, allowed her to go right up to the chart and she couldn't make out the big E. I would say that's a problem. Yes, and she was absolutely devastated because this is all she'd ever wanted to do. And she didn't want to be a writer. She had a, de- a degree in creative writing, but she only had that because they were, it was an easy A. So she ended up taking so many creative writing classes that that's what her degree was in. Um, but she got married, had some kids, and then um, in the mid-1960s, she started uh, freelance writing and eventually started writing for the detective magazines, True Stories, and her old friends at Seattle Homicide welcomed her back and gave her access to their files. Leslie, in the preface to your book, is this your first true crime book? It's the first one I've written, but I helped my mom quite a bit with her last one, uh, Lying in Wait, because she was so sick. Okay. And I well, also it, edited a, a, I worked really closely with a writer, um, Rhonda Stakely, who wrote a book called I Survived Ted Bundy. And I was her editor, and I worked very, very closely with Rhonda on developing that book. But it's the first one with my byline on it. There you go. And, and your book is called A Tangled Web. So this is your first, you know, on your own, uh, big name on the front instead of Ann Rule, it says Leslie Rule. And what surprised me in the preface was that you say that, you know, while your mom was raising four children, she wrote over a thousand articles, over a thousand Yep, she wrote about two a week for years for uh, the detective magazines. It was Master Detective and True Detective and Inside Detective. And she supported the family with that because my dad uh, got cancer. Um, and they, they separated and he eventually died. But he was so sick he wasn't able to do much to support the family. So she turned to her writing and it came naturally to her. And then coupled that with her interest in in police work, it was a natural fit. And, and, you know, when Gary was saying it wasn't her destiny to be a policewoman, even though she did it, you know, when she was 22 years old, she got married and started having children at 23. And then look at the, the prolific writer that she ended up becoming. Isn't it funny that somebody's destiny could could be somewhere else than what they think, and yet she really ran with that. 
you also wrote sh that she uh, wrote two books a year the last, was it 10 years or 20 years? Yeah, she was the hardest worker I have ever known. I have no idea how she did that. Um, after writing my own true crime book and seeing how much work it is, it, I don't know how she did it. How she, how she raised a family, how she uh, wrote all of those books, and found time to volunteer at the Seattle Crisis Clinic, uh, the suicide hotline. And that was part of her destiny, too, because you know who she met there. Well, we do, yes. A young man yeah. named Ted turned out to be Ted Bundy. Yep, he was her crisis clinic partner, and they worked together um, for a little over a year, uh, two nights a week, um, saving lives. And this was back in the 1970s when it took a long time to trace a call. Somebody called up, and they were in the middle of um, taking their own life. Um, and they usually wouldn't get their address, so they had to trace the call. And it could take an hour or more. And she thought Leslie, this young man who worked beside her was so kind, and she was really impressed with him, um, Ted Bundy. Um, this was, of course, before anyone knew his name. And it, that seemed to be part of her destiny, too. Um, after they parted ways, the girls started disappearing around Seattle, and the leading theory among detectives was that, um, that cults were sacrificing maidens. And so she got a contract for her very first book, um, but it would not be published unless the case was solved. She had no idea it would turn out that her friend would be the killer. Yes, yes. And Leslie, I do want to ask you for your opinion and insight into Ted Bundy and the horrific serial killing that, uh, that came from somebody, from the mind and the, the effort the collected energy of someone who did, as you said, worked alongside your mother, saving lives, trying to talk people out of committing suicide. And yet here was someone who had a second life going in which he was gleefully, sadistically taking life. Yes. And that to me is one of the supreme ironies that that kind, that those activities, two careers, if you will, is coming from the mind of somebody who is so split and seemingly without conscience, yet to meet the guy sitting right next to him, helping people who are in crisis, he seemed like the soul of compassion. Have you sat long and hard thinking about that and how something like that could even happen? Well, it was an act. He really didn't care. Uh, my mom found out later that on the nights when he was working alone, he'd often just turn the... the uh, phones up and take a nap. So he didn't really care, but these uh, people, these uh, sadistic sociopaths, can be very, very good at putting on a facade of kindness. And that's one of the scariest things about it, is because they can so easily disguise themselves as compassionate people. I think that was one of the things that your mom shared with us on air is that, uh, you know, she felt as though she could really suss out the, the liars and the, the, the cheaters and the criminals pretty easily from years of being involved in crime and, and you know, working with police and, and working on these stories. And yet, when it came to Ted Bundy, 
she said it was very hard with a psychopath to to read him and and so it that bothered her uh you know afterward that she said if you're a true sociopath that um you you find it pretty easy to fool people yes and she realized she was naive and i think a lot of people listening right now think oh well, i wouldn't be fooled i would know but you don't always know sometimes no. we get a feeling at a gut level like something isn't right but yeah. these people are really really good and my mom used to say that unless they choose to show you who they really are, you're not going to know. And Ted Bundy wore the perfect mask. The only people that really knew were the people that um, he was attacking. And when we see Ted Bundy finally in the courtroom, there was a break for him. I'm going back a long ways, but before he was sent to death row, he exploded in the courtroom before he was yeah. sentenced, and people could see the demon inside coming out that he kept well hidden for many years. Yes, and photographers uh, captured images of that. But he, he mm. obviously chose to do it at that moment. There may have been a self-destructive, um, some part of him that, that wanted to be stopped. Mm. Um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book, A Tangled Web. Would it be... Uh, I mentioned something to Gary, and I want to see if you agree or disagree with what I told him. I said, in a way, Gary, her book is a little bit like an episode of Columbo, because you find out who the killer is before the last page of the story. So then you're just trying to untangle how it all happened. Would you agree or disagree? Well, there is definitely one detective, and I drew an analogy between um, him and Colombo because he did, he pretended when he was um, interviewing this woman that he didn't have a clue. He pretended to be confused and not as bright as he actually was, and and that ended up tripping up the killer in the end. Um, I, I, this isn't a whodunit, but I still didn't want to be really obvious and come out and say who the killer was in the beginning, uh, because I wanted people, I wanted readers to experience what it was like for the people she was fooling. So I, I told uh, part of the story from the perspective of her boyfriend. And a, a lot of people, when they, this case actually did get quite a bit of media attention, and a lot of people, when they heard about it, would say, oh, well, I wouldn't have been fooled. I would have known. You know, it was so obvious. But it really wasn't. Um, and so I wanted people to to feel what it was like to be somebody who was under her spell. And I think in doing that, it helped create a little bit of suspense for the, the reader who knows nothing about the case. Um, that maybe would pick up the book and not be absolutely certain who the killer was. I, I didn't really yes. hide her behaviors, but um, I kind of tried to show other sides of her or at least the sides that she was showing to other people to help to create the illusion. Okay, Leslie, I'm going to use my turn signal here and make a lateral move. (laughs) 
Uh, it would be very, very useful for our listeners who will be quite delighted wouldn't be the right word, not to offend you, but intrigued. a tangle, intrigued and drawn into a book. Suzanne's a pretty quick reader, but it's highly unusual for her to not put a book down for two days because she's determined to finish it. The story is that compelling. Go ahead and outline and build in the details, Leslie, Rule, so that people who uh, cruise the bookstore get on... Uh, Amazon can see this book and have some idea of what they will be purchasing. Well, it was a love triangle murder, and it was set in Omaha, Nebraska in 2012. Um, two females, both dating uh, one man, and one of them uh, was obsessed with him. And she, um, she killed um, Terry Farber. A really wonderful, warm, kind woman who was dating Dave Koopa. And the killer um, murdered her. She, she, we're not exactly sure where they encountered each other, but was pretty sure it was at Dave's apartment when he was at work. And Terry had spent the night. And she was never seen again after he left for work that morning. And he got a text from Terry's phone saying, um, she wants, saying let's move in together which he thought was strange because they both already, you know, they just started dating. They both already said they didn't want a commitment. And when he said, no, I don't want to do that, he got back a really rude text um, breaking up with him. And so he just assumed it was Carrie. And he went home that night. There was no sign of her. And the only people that really knew something was wrong uh, was her family. Um, she vanished. And her mother started receiving texts, supposedly from her daughter, Carrie, um, that she recognized this does not sound like my daughter, because she and Carrie were very close, and these texts would come in, um, just really bad grammar and misspellings, um, completely out of character for Carrie, and they were also very rude. Um, but the police would not be believe Nancy, Carrie's mother, that something had happened to her daughter. Well... Um, the killer actually um, took over Carrie's identity online and pretended to be her. She set up a new Facebook page for her. Um, she had her cell phone. Um, she sent over 20,000 texts and emails in Carrie's name over the next few years and convinced this first round of police um, that Carrie was actually a stalker. Um, and it was very discouraging for Carrie's mother because she knew that her daughter wouldn't do that. And it was this uh, brilliant uh, team of detectives that came in after a couple of years and cracked the case. Leslie, <clears throat> a few minutes ago when we, when we were asking you about this, um, you, you said that the way that you wrote the story, which I like so much, is that you're giving it from different people's points of view where you don't have all of the information up front. And I want to say that the killer gets revealed about halfway through the book where it's actually more or less stated. You, you're kind of left wondering what really happened here because as you look at the story from various people, everybody's a little bit confused. And as you said, even the first set of police were 
really not sure what was going on. The thing that makes this um, a, a story for 2020 is is really um, very much r- revealed in the last paragraph of your preface. And since it's just a, a few sentences, I wanted to go ahead and read that and ask you another question there. Okay. You say, with this story, I hope to warn readers about crimes my great-grandfather could not have imagined as he embarked upon his police career over a century ago. In his pre-computer world, cyber stalkers did not yet exist. Murderers have not changed since the 1920s when he began arresting them. They remain as cold-hearted as they were in the 1960s when my mother first began to write about them. Killers have not changed, but their methods have. Now they have an arsenal of electronic devices they can use to dupe us, but we can outsmart them by learning their tricks. And and somewhere I think I read that, um, you know, part of what your your mom's got, what she got out of writing so many books were the people who contacted her to thank her for saying, your book really gave me a heads up about uh, some activity that's been going on in my world, and now I'm looking at it differently. And I would say the same thing with your book brought up to the 21st century. If people can read this book and, and say to themselves, oh my gosh, you know, I have to be aware, really aware of what it is that's going happening online because there are many uh, methods that you talk about in this book for cyber crimes and cyber stalkers. And I have to say, it really opened my eyes with it. Were you aware of this before you wrote this book, or did this open your eyes as well as far as cyber crimes go? I, I didn't know very much about how they operated until I researched this. And I was surprised. I didn't know, for instance, that um, a person could actually send themselves uh, an email or a text to arrive, to arrive at a later period. So when the killer was hanging out um, with the object of her affection, Dave Krupa, um, suddenly they would both get a text from the stalker. And he, he told me that was one of the things that really fooled him because his girlfriend's sitting there right next to him, and she's getting a, she's getting a, um, a threatening text too. It didn't occur to him that she was sending it herself. I didn't know such a thing existed. I didn't either until I I read it in your book. And that's one of the more interesting ones. But you also talk about other things that are done with, um, you know, fake accounts and, you know, multiple emails and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting that part of what helped solve the crime are the people who work in that um, IT world that can go in and do uh, forensics on emails and 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 stuff like that to see you know where it is they came from what the yeah. addresses are that had to be interesting too to learn all that it really is and that's a whole uh, that's a whole art trying to um, de- decipher some of these um, 
tangled web people have created with electronics. It took a real genius. Um, investigator Anthony Cava did the uh, did the forensic work on, on deciphering um, the digital trail. That would be a great field for somebody going into, just a young person right now who wants to go into some kind of forensics. Um, it's something that we're going to need a lot of help with in the future. I'm prepared to so believe technology that. Based now. Leslie, let me ask you the most fundamental question of all, and I am presuming the intrigue factor here, but of all the cases you've written numerous books, your mom was Ann Rule. She still is. She's over on the other side, probably proud of her daughter. I'm sure she Thank is. You. I hope so. Why? Oh, I'm quite certain. A tangled web. Why this particular case? You went to a great deal of effort over two years. There had to be something that retained your interest and drove you as you went into all the research before you even sat down to write it. Well, I, I felt like um, that I really wanted to give one more warning to the world about how dangerous females could be. And my mom had um, several of the killers she wrote about were female. And I think they can be the most dangerous killers of all um, because we're not expecting it. We just don't expect females to be dangerous. And so I specifically set out to look for a case where the killer was female and I looked for a love triangle murder because um, I know that uh, love, I guess you can't call it love, but um, has romance, um, those kinds of emotions can stir the worst possible traits in a sadistic female um, when she is rejected. So I specifically looked for that because I thought that would really help to reveal how these people operate. And when I stumbled across this case, I saw that added element of how she used electronics to both commit and conceal her crimes. And it was very it was a very different case. I'd never seen anything quite like it. And so that's what intrigued me. And the first thing I did was I called Carrie Farber's mother, the victim's mother to make sure it was okay with her um, because I didn't want to do anything that was going to further her pain. I, I needed the family to be on board. And she said, yes, I would like, I would like um, to see a book about this. And then at that point I queried my editor. You know, um, it's interesting that the killer is a woman in your first true crime book, because I, I think most of the killers end up being men it's a it's a smaller percentage that are mm -hmm. women, and um, and it and it 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 intrigued me that the killer was a woman, and um, and I was wondering how she went about it, which doesn't get solved exactly in your book. Uh, there is blood evidence, but there turned out to be no body. Right, that's not. Her's not, her remains have not been found um, yet, but um, that made a very difficult case for the prosecutor um, to get a conviction for it because it's difficult when you don't have a body. Um, that they did come up with some other really compelling evidence um, that pretty much uh, cinched it for them. Yes. 
Yes, a lot of evidence. And the evidence that they did come up with that convicted this woman was all of this cyber evidence, all of these emails and things. Uh, that was, a, 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 in large part, what it was that convicted her was her own words in writing. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I use the title, A Tangled Web, because she was using the web, um, but she, she went so far uh, that she tangled herself up in it and then ended up getting trapped. She wrapped herself, like, you know, against a wall, and she, um, she took photos um, and thought they were deleted. Right. She, did del- she deleted them, and she thought they were gone. They weren't really gone. Anthony Cabo was able to retrieve those images, and that's ultimately what convicted her. Right. And again, not physical evidence as much as um, historical evidence of, you know, photos and written words as opposed to the actual body, which which I thought was interesting. Um, This is such a fascinating story. And, you know, as as I have said and as Gary said, I, I just couldn't put it down because I loved following it, even after I knew who the killer was, I wanted to know, well, how did, what happened next? And then what happened next? And what happened next? And so you you do a, a good account of all the people who are involved in it, and even a little bit of their history, too, so you can see where they were coming from based on things that had happened in their lives. So I thought the way that you put that together was Really, really uh, a fascinating, fascinating read. Oh, thank um, you. I appreciate that. One of the things that uh, I've been following just this week alone has been the story of the remains of the brother and sister in Idaho that yes. were found on their stepfather's property. Heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Well, and, and the mother... And the stepfather, uh, actually it was a a mother and boyfriend at the time, after the children went missing, they went to Hawaii, got married, and had a a really nice, wonderful honeymoon. And, and, you know, when those children went missing, Gary and I talked about it last fall, and I said, uh, they're dead. They're dead. They've been killed. I, 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 I knew it immediately. Yeah, uh, I was really hoping they were stashed away in a cabin somewhere, you know, with relatives or friends or something. And no, but that was not to be. It, I think this story really breaks the hearts of a lot of people who've been following it. Is this the kind of story that you might possibly pursue, Leslie? People um, are going to want to read yeah, about that for I, years I to come. I wouldn't pursue it. First of all, there's going to be a lot of writers. Um, that are going to want to write about this. And yes. I, I wouldn't want to really compete. You know, I w- I'd like to find a story that other writers aren't looking at. And also, it's just, it's so sad. You know, but, I, but toward the end of her life, my mom had a really hard time writing about children's deaths. And it always yeah. bothered her. And she told yeah. me, as I get older, I'm more sensitive. She said, these things are bothering me more and more. And so she was trying to avoid that. When she wrote the Susan Powell case, um, she wasn't setting out to write about children's deaths. 
course, that was um, the woman who went missing uh, a few years back, and she had two little boys. And as it turned out, and my mom didn't know this was going to happen when she started writing about it, um, but Josh Powell ended up um, having a a visit with the little boys uh, who the grandparents had custody of, um, brought them into his house, and then blew the house up. Um, killing himself and then two children. And my mom had got very close with um, the, the grandparents, and that was pretty painful for her to, when that happened. And, and I think, you know, I, it was hard, you know, really the hard writing about Carrie and the pain of her family. Um, yes. If, you know, if you care about people, you can't help but really feel for them when you're writing their story. And when it's a tragic story, it's, you know, it hurts. It's kind of like, it's almost like you personally know the person, even if you haven't met them. Leslie, I'll just ask you finally in the last 30 seconds we've got, do you feel on some level that you are picking up the mantle of your mom? Do you think you're going to carry on her legacy in your own work? Well, I, you know, I still want to write in various genres, and I actually would like to do some more writing for children. You know, my first books were geared toward teens, and I'm working on some things that are more geared towards, like, a 7 to 10-year-olds. So I, I don't think I wanted to stick with one genre. I mean, if the perfect crime case came along, um, then maybe I would write another crime book. But um, I, I'm not really set in stone as far as what I plan to do creatively. Well, we don't know if there will be a second one, but I want to encourage people to read your, your Tangled Web, Leslie Rule, the author. Thank you for being with us today, Leslie. We're we're glad you made it through. Thank you. It's so so good to talk to you guys again after all this time. That's right. We will stay in touch. Who knows what's going to come from your pen next? Thank you, Leslie Rule. Who do we have coming up? Okay, we're going to have... I know, that's we don't have a, a button for all of that. Hey, you know what? 1 p.m., we're going to have Trip Talk. Stay tuned to AM 1150. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.